0: You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the house and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone, and a special welcome to tonight's guest of honor, Deborah Levy. These days, it feels almost surreal to welcome anyone from outside. Uh, outside of Norway and all the way from the UK, so we're very happy to have you here. My name is Osé Lapegolan and I work with the program here at the House of Literature. And we dubbed tonight's event A Room of One's Own, as a reference to Virginia Woolf, because she's one of the many writers and artists whom Lévi enters into dialogue with in her three living memoirs, sorry, living autobiographies. Autobiographies written in the storm of life. But we also dubbed tonight's event A Room of One's Own because the idea of space and home seems so central in all of these three books, in terms of where you belong and what you long for, and in terms of having a space for oneself to write, especially as a woman writer. Deborah Levy is an award-winning writer of a number of plays, novels, and poetry, and most recently, as I mentioned, these three autobiographies called Things I Don't Want to Know, translated into Norwegian by Anna-Katrina Vållebæk, The Cost of Living, and Real Estate, most recently. Livi has said that the choreography of writing includes an understanding of the personal and the political. And in her autobiographies, she brilliantly shows how the two are intertwined, as she explores motherhood, womanhood, divorce, and new beginnings all written in Levy's precise and shimmering language. To talk to Livy tonight, we're happy to welcome writer and critic Maria Horvai, until recently the editor of the literary magazine, Vindue. so please give them both a warm welcome.
1: Thank you. thank you, and thank you all so much for being here, and welcome to you, Deborah. You. It's a delight to have you here in Moscow. How is it to
2: be travelling again? It's terrible. <laughs> um, I'm very pleased to be sitting down right now because I've been—I've uh, just arrived at Oslo Airport, and there was one-hour queue where we all standing up and people fainting. So it's lovely to be here on this chair and at the Literature House and to meet you and. Um, Thank you, Maria. Um, it, it's, it does feel good to travel. Um, there's a lot of travel in my books, for those who, who have read them. Um, so these books are a sort of mashup of travel writing and philosophy and politics and just the, the good old everyday life. Good on a Tuesday, bad on a Friday, maybe something like that. We're going to talk about uh, these
1: books uh, for the next 45 minutes or so. And uh, congratulations, by the way, on on your recent instalment, Real Estate is the most recently published and uh, perhaps the place where we could start our conversation today. Um, I wanted to go straight into the beginning of this. This living autobiography, yes. uh, as you call it. Um, because it, it was a, it's, a, it's a trilogy, as, as also said, which started with the publication of uh, Things I Don't Want to Know yes. in 2013. And then in uh, 2018, uh, The Cost of Living uh, was published. And well, just to backtrack, uh, just to skip my first uh, I jumbled my first question. OK, so this is, this is, this like is a good. Beginning. Yeah. No, yeah. I was uh, thinking, would you mind just um, telling the audience a little bit about the impulse to write these books? Yeah. Uh, what made you write things I want to know uh, in mm. 2013 and what sure. made you go on to to uh, two more books?
2: So there are three books and, um, and the first one is titled, Things I Don't Want to Know. And this has just been translated. My thanks to to the translator. Uh, you know, with for writers, without translators, we are nothing. We really are uh, rien. So um, uh, my, my big thanks for being my voice here in, in Norway. So the impulse, you know, um, It was kind of preposterous, it was was like a dare because my understanding of autobiographies is that you have to be famous or you have to be maybe an alcoholic, a recovering alcoholic or something like that, a celebrity of some kind. So to begin to think about something called a living autobiography, which is really about everyday life, um, a thinking female mind um, moving through the world, um, both inside, interior, and very much in the world, too. Um, how would anybody be interested <laughs> to read this? And um, so, uh, Things that I Don't Want to Know actually began as a response to an essay by George Orwell, uh, written in 1946, British political writer. Um, And he he wrote a a very small, you know, it's not a long essay, Why I Write. And he found four headings to describe his motivation for hammering the typewriter. He drank tea, he chain smoked, and uh, he had the typewriter. And these were political purpose, historical impulse, sheer egoism, aesthetic enthusiasm. And I thought, well, why don't I give this, uh, you know, hitch a ride on steel, really, Orwell's subtitles, and give them an airing from a female writer's point of view. So you have to imagine the day in my writing shed in London, it's under an apple tree. It's quite dusty. I've, I've got this dare. Would, would anybody want to read this? Would I want to read it? And I write Political Purpose. I give the subtitle, Orwell's. And the first line is, that spring when life was very hard and I was at war with my lot and simply couldn't see where there was to get to, I seem to cry most on escalators at train stations. And I'm thinking, but this is under political purpose. How so? And slowly, slowly, um, I began to understand the political purpose of starting in the first person, the I, um, who's a little bit like me, quite a lot like me, but not exactly exactly because you, you, you will understand, you know, you have to find a, a voice. That's quite a lot like yourself, but a voice to steer the book. Um, and that's intimate. That's like a conversation with you, but is also formal, got a, enough distance to, that was very important to me. So I had to find that, that voice. And um, I began to understand why it was under political purpose, because why is she crying on escalators? And we hear a little bit at the end of the book. I don't answer it um, and really, um, literally, until the end. Or maybe a little bit in the beginning. But her childhood has come back to chase her. She was born in apartheid, South Africa. And it's come back to chase her, you know, um, as she goes up the escalators. So I began to understand, Maria, that I didn't have to write it chronologically. Most autobiographies, I think, start with childhood, right? And then, um, and I always skip that bit which is really weird because I'm such a Freudian, you know? Childhood is, 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 is important, uh, but I skip it and I, I start to be interested when the uh, protagonist, the narrator has um, some ideas of their own and uh, leave home kind of thing. But I, I, so I discovered I, I could write a living autobiography in the present tense that's not nostalgic that's not looking over my shoulder at the past, but the past, the present, and something of the future are are platted together, are, are, are coexisting together, and that was my technical uh, challenge as a as a writer, really, to do that. Do you always know it was going to be three books? No. Oh my goodness, no. I finished the first one, and um, and people seemed to like reading it. And uh, when I was editing it, you know, I thought, yes, I think I think it stands. You have these strange conversations with yourself as as writer, <coughs> as a writer. You talk to yourself a lot, you know, um, and. Um, and then it occurred to me that there was more to do with, with the voice that I had um, discovered. And things were happening in my life. My marriage was coming to an end, a long marriage. Um, I was going to move with my daughters out of the family home and make another life at 50, as I was then, uh, with my daughters. And then the title came to me, uh, The Cost of Living, and I thought, hmm, yes, I think I can, I think I will continue. And Real
1: Estate, the most recent yeah. published book, it's, uh, it's, in many ways, uh, picks up where The Cost of Living uh, leaves off, or it, 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 it de- develops the themes of uh, The Cost of Living even further, and in the First page, and the first sentence, I think, of real estate, uh, you buy a banana plant yeah. uh, in uh, in uh, that you, East in London, London. In East London, yeah. that you bring back to your home. And the banana plants quickly start to thrive and it grows. And it even earns the nickname of your third child <laughs> uh, by yeah. your actual daughters. And I thought it was just a, such a beautiful way to introduce the central theme of the book, which in, in many ways, is, 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 it's it's the home, uh, but it's also what we put into the home, what goes into making a home, both of yeah. physical object, physical structure of the home itself, but also of nurture and work and care. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you describe that? Like, uh, I
2: have uh, a, sort of, of a very of, big respect mm-hmm. for homemaking because when we make a home, all of us, it doesn't matter if uh, it's very humble. But we make a kind of utopia, something that we, a a space, we design a space. In the most, it it can be really very simple, putting some flowers on the table and some chairs around it um, and inviting people to come and have some wine and bread and cheese. Um, So the making of a utopia the designing of a world in which we feel at ease, a little bit happy, hopefully, Um, and especially for women. This is very important. Um, And so this is where I part from Simone de Beauvoir, who is my, really, she is my muse, but I'm not her muse, right? Because um, <laughs> because I really do believe it's, it's, it's important for us to make um, a space that we can think in and feel um, safe in and, and happy and have thoughts in. But where I love Beauvoir, um, and I, I only mentioned her because she's really all over this book is um, when she writes uh, to, to women, uh, be someone, be necessary, be loved. She was very good on that. Uh, she was very good on love and politics actually, very uniquely so. She put a, put, put value on, on, on love and politics equally, which is actually, um, uh, that suits me fine. And um, so real estate is looking at th- that funny word, it's an American term. Do you have that term here in, in Norway, real We have estate? an equivalent, but it, it doesn't directly translate. It's yeah, because um, we don't have it in uh, Britain. You'd say um, property or estate agent, something like this. But I liked real estate together, so it's it's American. And I was looking at um, the real yearning and desire uh, in myself and in the narrator. See, I have a sort of split. I kind of sometimes say narrator, just to make a little bit of distance. Um, a, A real desire for a house. A, for, and is a house the same thing as a home? Because there are many women who haven't felt at home in their home, in their house, okay? So um, that's the first question, a desire and, 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 a, and a desire for, for a house. Then um, the second part of it is if patriarchy is the mansion, is the big house in the world that owns all the land and all the deeds to the land. Then are women, women, their tenants, sitting tenants, okay, on the land? So that's another question. Then it looks at the departure from a homeland, in, in my case, age nine, from Africa to, to Britain. And then it looks at, um, discusses with, with you, um, unreal estate. That's all our dream houses that we don't own, but we kind of um, design in our minds, oh, I want that one, and I want those, those shutters, and the door's like this, and it's got mimosa in the garden. So there's a lot of unreal estate um dream houses you sit on a tram and you think hmm, yes i think i i i i will have this house i want a house by the river and there's a little rowing boat and um um uh, the the you come in and it's painted a very particular green and a big wooden table so a lot of fantasy and i look at uh discuss the fantasy and the reality And finally, in real estate, um, I come to the conclusion that actually my books are my real estate. They are my properties. And so when I was writing, I designed them just like I wanted to. In other words, these books, these particular books. And um, so when it's, when it's published here in, in, in Norway, the nice thing about real estate is that you're really holding, I, I, I wanted to be a, a good host, a very good host, because you, you're holding my real estate in your hands. So actually as an object, conceptually, it's, it's quite interesting too.
1: That's, uh, that's interesting because I, uh, one of the words I would use to describe your books is very, they're very hospitable, they're very welcoming uh, to the reader, and you feel, you feel both uh, uh, engaged and, um, and taken care of, in a way, uh, in, in, uh, in reading them. And uh, but one of the, the other things about uh, your real and unreal estates in, uh, in, in, in your most recent books that there's also a sense of haunting. Uh, haunting that yes. they've been haunted yeah. uh, by your past or the narrator's past and the narrator's former selves mm-hmm. uh, that uh, runs through the book almost in uh, sometimes several books in a literal sense that, yeah. that the narrator meets uh, a version of uh, her former selves um, so it's almost like a cohabitation between past and present yes. taking place and. It's not always an easy (laughs) living arrangement, but it's perhaps an inevitable
2: one. Well, yeah, I mean, um, so I think this, um, how we live in time, I mean, especially in the pandemic, I think this must have been more intense, really, but we, we live in the past and we live in the present at the same time. Because um, not in any big way. I don't mean in a nostalgic way, you know. But you think, ah, something from the past comes up in the present. This is how thought streams work, and so writing has to find a way. In my view, of of holding these these thought streams. <laughs> you know, it's not. It's much easier to write chronologically, frankly, um, but. But really, if we want to write how we think and how we feel, then we have to find a way to, to honour that. And um, all of these houses that we're talking about in real estate are haunted by um, the spectres of the past, it's true. Just this and that, you know. Um, in um, the cost of living... I actually um, had my nine-year-old self uh, knock on the door of my 42-year-old self. And I couldn't believe I was going to try this out, actually. I just thought, this is never going to work. Why don't you just stop now, Deborah? Why, why don't you go and have a swim? Come back and do something sensible, you know? But I thought... But, but writing is a bit like it, like, you know, if you don't, if you just do something that you know how to do, then it's a bit boring, you know. You can go so far, it's nice, you can have a good writing day, but it's always uh, something that you really don't know how to write that pushes the story forward. So, anyway, I have this little girl, she's nine. She's in a summer dress. Her mother has cut her fringe crooked, you know, like, like, like so. Uh, she, she has no shoes on because in Africa she, she was barefoot. And she arrives in London at the door of her 40-year-old self. And she knocks on the door and she says, let me in. And the 40-year-old self, so these are two, two of the selves that are kind of like me. No, you can't come in. <laughs> she doesn't want this child to make any trouble because she has her two daughters sitting on the on the sofa watching a, a show in Britain called The Big British Bake Off about how to make cake. And this little girl has come from the big political drama of South Africa. And um and I just sort of place her on the sofa with all her experience in her little summer dress, with these two daughters watching jam being spread between sponge cake, and um, that was very interesting. I felt very changed after, after after writing the books. I think I think they really changed me in, in some way. I felt closer to. Um, something I, uh, I realized that if we all wrote about our lives as we feel feel it, was it you say it? If we wrote about our life, our lives as we feel it, we would never write anything boring. And I don't mean I mean lots of skill helps, okay? But actually this is available to all of us because I don't mean you write, I woke up and I felt so sad today, nothing like that, okay? But, like, if on Monday you slam a door very hard and you don't really know why until maybe 20 minutes later, you said that to me on Tuesday and I'm slamming the door on Thursday, Right, um, that would be very that would be very interesting to write about. Be political to write about because it's uh, it, it's about not voicing a feeling, not voicing something, a silence. Then you just slam the door. Right, we've all been there. Let's let's admit it. And um, if we wrote about, if we really wrote about life as we feel it first. This was my instinct with the Orwell, Britain's most political writer uh, of his generation, right? Well, maybe that's not quite true, but just a very, very esteemed writer. To take political purpose and to start with a female narrator crying on an escalator, that was a revelation to me. Same with historical impulse. I thought, well, I would have to write about South Africa. Um, again, in things I don't want to know, um, it's important to, to really explain the title. Uh, so the things we don't want to know, we know anyway, but we've pushed them down, we've 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 repressed them. Okay, so it's a bit like when a bill comes in through the post. We know what's inside the envelope, but we're not going to open it. Something like that. So um, the things the narrator doesn't want to know come back to chase her, to haunt her on that escalator going going up. Can I read a little bit, please? Do of this. Maybe is it is it more polite to stand up? Oh, maybe I have to take this. Sorry. Hello? Oh, okay. Can you hear me like this? Okay, political purpose. That spring, when life was very hard and I was at war with my lot and simply couldn't see where there was to get to, I seemed to cry most on escalators at train stations. Going down them was fine, but there was something about standing still and being carried upwards that did it. From apparently nowhere, Tears poured out of me. And by the time I got to the top and felt the wind rushing in, it took all my effort to stop myself from sobbing. It was as if the momentum of the escalator carrying me forwards and upwards was a physical expression of a conversation I was having with myself. Escalators, which in the early days of their invention were known as traveling staircases or magic stairways, had mysteriously become danger zones. I knew things had to change when one week I found myself staring intently at a poster in my bathroom titled The Skeletal System. This featured a human skeleton with its inner organs and bones labeled in Latin and which I constantly misread as the societal system. I made a decision. If escalators had become machines with torrid emotionality, a system that transported me to places I did not want to go, Why not book a flight to somewhere I actually did want to go? The man on the aeroplane, unlucky enough to be sitting next to a weeping woman, looked like he'd been in the army and now spent his life lying on the beach. If anything, my tears seemed to send him into a tantric shopping coma because he called for the air steward, and ordered two cans of beer, a vodka and Coke, an extra Coke, a tube of Pringles, a scratch card, a teddy bear stuffed with mini chocolate bars, a Swiss watch and special offer, and asked the crew if the airline had one of those questionnaires to fill in where you get a free holiday if it's drawn out of the hat. (laughs) He pushed the teddy bear into my face and said, that'll cheer you up if nothing will, as if the bear was a handkerchief with glass eyes sewn on it.
1: (laughs) What you also get a sense of in this opening paragraph, I think, is, is what Orwell also wrote in his essay, that at the heart of every writer's motivation, there lies a mystery. If yes. There's a sense sort of mystery to it, what goes into
2: Yes, that's absolutely right. So, uh, you know, this idea that if you write memoirish work, that there's no enigma or there's no mystery, or that you know the answer to questions, that's not true. It, it, it really isn't. Um, but the most important thing, really, um, about writing all three books, Is that they got to do with female desire. So, um, and I mean desire in its biggest sense. You want something, you long for something. Um, And um, the the French film director Céline Sciano, the director of Portrait of a Lady on Fire, she wrote a very interesting speech. Um, for the BFI, where she said, when you give a female character back her desire, you give her back her subjectivity. So she's not just an object, she's a subject, right? She's not somebody who, um, if if you think about um, some books or some films, you ask, well, what are the women there to do? What are they there For they They're often there to serve everyone else's desires and needs. So what about their own desires? Why is that such a, why should that be radical? Why should that be unusual? But somehow it kind of is. So I wanted to create three books in which it's all about that, you know you, you 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 return subjectivity and desire to all the personae in in the book and um so so these books in a sense are instruments that you can put out into the world um which go yes this is a, this is about female desire it's about um in my view, um, the necessity to, to create a voice that is immensely powerful, but also vulnerable, because that's how we all are, they can coexist, um, that is um, outspoken, but also quiet. Um, so in in things that I want to know um, I think um, I write to become a writer I had to learn to speak up to speak louder and then louder and then just to speak in my own voice which isn't loud at all so all three books really run with that idea
1: and it perhaps take a, takes us back to uh, the title of this talk, which is A Room of One's Own. And mm-hmm. of course, it borrows its title from Virginia Woolf's famous essay, uh, as, does, as have countless other talks and seminars and books and essays that have been inspired by this, by this text. Um, but what strikes me, uh, and I don't know if you would uh, agree, is that a lot of the people engaged with this particular essay is very much focused on the room itself and mm. the 500 pounds a year. And they don't perhaps pay as much attention to the task Virginia Woolf gives to it. To she, she says, what, what work needs to be done in that room? It doesn't come completely rent-free. You have to stake out mm. a new course for female mm. writers, for, for the female voice in fiction. Um, mm. And this, I feel, is a... Or, As you say it's a huge part of of your living autobiographies
2: yes i love virginia wolf i mean i I really do actually love her um i tell you what i love about her when she wrote her first um, ever review so you 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 will remember maria writing your first ever the very first one Uh, what did she do with the money she bought a persian cat It is true that she has some private money, right? The next time she, um, now she's got a little bit uh, of a name as a, and reputation as a reviewer. So she bought a motor car. Oh, that's a well-paid job. Um, but she is so on side with um, difficulty and with pleasure And she writes very calmly. She writes much more calmly, in my view, than she feels. That's quite important. You can decide yourselves whether that's good or bad, right? But um, she starts... Is it A Room of One's Own? I think she starts... She's walking um, in, in a at Oxbridge, either Cambridge or Oxford. So it's Cambridge, in fact. And she's walking on the grass and she's having a really good, interesting thought. She's chasing something in her mind. And in the distance, she sees a porter, it's called a a beagle in Britain. And they're the the men who are there to make sure that you don't walk, walk on the grass and that uh, everybody's behaving themselves. And he looks very cross, and he's coming towards her, and he says to her, keep off the grass. It's for scholars, and it's for professors. And this is to the woman who really wasn't educated. Her brothers were sent to Cambridge, but she was sort of home educated. She, She was lucky, her father had a good library. But she felt this very deeply, that she she didn't have, this, this super clever woman, didn't have an education. And now she's being told, get onto the gravel. That's your place. And the grass isn't your place. And, um, and she loses her thought. She loses what she was thinking. And what she can't say, of course, is that that was a valuable, that might have been a very valuable thought. Imagine if we'd lost that book. Uh, that essay, a room of one's own. Luckily, we didn't, because she writes in in her room of one of her own. Um, and then later, in an essay called "The Professions," she says, "What is a woman? I don't know. We don't know until." until she's been allowed to express herself, her skills, to develop her skills in every area of life. Then we don't, we, I don't know, she says. I like that question. I don't know. That's fair enough. Um, But in real estate, it's not just um, a room of one's own. It's feeling, it's, it's a world, of ones, it's a world in which we f- collectively feel um, more at ease with that we take more care of. Um, so I push it I push it out. Mm. Yeah. At the same time,
1: you do have a room of your own or a shed of your own in uh, in both mm. the cost of living and in real estate. Two different writing sheds, and and you vividly. Uh, describe them and, and, and make clear how important they are for your work. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, one of the things I, I really delighted in, in in both these works is how you describe writing all over the place. You write mm-hmm. in hotel rooms, you wri- mm-hmm. write in balconies, you write before your daughters wake up in the morning. It's like you you're carving out this room of your own and, and, and taking it with you. Or do you,
2: are you able to write Anywhere. Anywhere. No, you know, um, people of my generation, you sort of grew up with this idea. You used to see in the Sunday magazines uh, famous male writer's studies. And I used to love that they had a silver tray with a, a decanter of whiskey in like a crystal thing, little glasses and a big fire here and uh, lots of books and long table. And presumably there was someone doing all the work for the <laughs> for this writer, looking after the children, cooking <laughs> meals, because, wow, well, the genius worked well. Um, not that, maybe one day I will have that tray of whiskey and the, the open fire and the books and all of that. But um, I do, I did write in a shed. I wrote two of these books. Um, when my marriage was over and we moved to a smaller smaller apartment, I needed somewhere to write. And a friend, a, a, um, the, uh, a great friend, I won't spoil it because you can read it all in the book, said, I think you need that shed. And this was the beginning of my love of... Of sheds um, built under an apple tree. I'd be writing away, and the squirrels, you know, would go up the tree and I'd watch them from the window. And I knew that they had seen me, but they weren't looking at me. They knew I was there, but they were apparently looking somewhere else over there. This is a bit abstract, I know, but that's a bit like, this is a, that's like writing where you, you know something is there and um, how can I put it? You've got to reach it, but you don't quite look at it in the eye um, because it's not the right time to do that. So you just sort of, you know there's an idea there, but you just pretend it's not. But it's, it's it's sort of there. That's um that was the squirrels. Then the apples falling onto the roof of the shed is a very explosive sound. I used to think a lot about Isaac Newton and gravity and, and um and um I was also thinking about how fast apples fall. So there's lots of distraction in a shed. Um, but actually um I really like wood. Maybe I should move to Norway and have a cabin. I love to write in wood, the smell of the wood and the kind of, um, it's not too bright wood, like white walls, you know, it's. It, I feel very held by it. Um, and uh, And the solitude, the beautiful, beautiful solitude of um, those years, writing in the shed was such a comfort to me, such a, such a nourishment. To really be able to think very deeply, um, writing—just so it doesn't get too romantic—you know—I'm not writing in a on paper. I've got a big desktop Mac, um, and um, and I'm peering at the scrolls over it like so um so the, the the shed is is a i recommend it. I recommend you write out of the home if you can and um and the shed was a, a real revelation to me and now I'm in Paris for a little bit, and I find that um I really like to write um with the window looking out on the market that is i i i work early in the mornings. And the market is put up at about six or seven in the morning. I like to see it all being put up and to run down and have a coffee uh, in the cafe with the people who are going to be selling vegetables and cheese and all in the market. And we talk and then I come up and write and that suits me very well. You uh, You wrote two novels as well
1: in the shed. Yeah. yeah in between the, the yeah. autobi- uh, living autobiographies yeah. and uh, and that's also one of the, the pleasures of, of these books is that you, you point out how scenes or situations or locations from your real life experience f- wind up in, in your novels so yeah. that you you get this bridging between the, the autobiography biograph uh, the memoirs memoirs. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> fair enough. And, and the fiction um yeah. did you enjoy this this uh... I very much like writing fiction and 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 non-fiction together um you know i in fiction um I'm writing a novel right now you know what I'm writing about right now I'm writing about the double the doppelganger oh my goodness oh that's <laughs> it's so interesting. Um, and um, so it's, it's, it's about a woman who apparently meets her identical living human double. Can you imagine? What sort, what sort of reality levels um, am I going to set up here? Or help you know, please give me some ideas. Anyway, it's 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 fantastic to write it and I won't talk about it because um that's a bad idea, you know, when you're writing a book. And it's um, it exists in a different way because I have avatars to speak for me in novels. Whereas strangely enough, in the living autobiographies, um there's a, I, I don't know whether is, I was going to say something that sounds too grand, um, but I'll try and put it another way. There's sort of history, there's history in them. So um, when I first started writing things that I want to know, both my parents were alive. My mum and dad were alive um, um, after I finished real estate. Both my parents were dead. So, um, so my father died in the summer of this year and my mother, who I write a lot about, died in 2015. But when I started this book, she was alive. And so um, they are in my books. They are very alive in, in all three of these books. Um, and um, that's an incredible, that's an incredible feeling, sort of, you know, it makes me cry a little bit and it makes me smile a little bit and I'm, I'm so glad that they, that they are in it. they residents of your real estate. Say again? They're residents of your real estate. They are, they are. So they're different projects.
1: Yep. <laughs> We're running out of time, but um, I just wanted to to scoot slightly back to uh, to the political purpose of mm. your of your uh, writing, uh, which you sewn in on in uh, in mm-hmm. things I don't want to know and and develops further develops further in in the later books, and it's got to do with what I sense is. Um, you making the link between having a language and ha- being in power or in power of your own life, in charge of your own life. And and um, there's a wonderful description in the early chapters of, of things I don't want to know of a group of mother, mothers, young mothers, who are probably a bit baffled by the new experience. And you yeah. describe how their words seems to be Developing into this sort of gloopy, babyish, but not quite, not quite, uh, or childlike uh, at least, um, mm-hmm. substance. Things are smiley and goopy, and yes. Um, and, uh, and I just so if, if you could, in conclusion to this conversation, just perhaps. Uh, Either read uh, this passage
2: or just... I'd love to to end with political purpose Mm. because my purpose is to write works of literature that topple the patriarchy. That would be good. Um, I would like to... Because, you know, patriarchy is so bad for men and it's so bad for boys and so bad for everybody so it's just bad so um I want to I want to write I I want these books so full of of life I hope that's why they're called living autobiographies um I have no problem with them being political so I'm looking at here Um, I'm just going to jump in, okay? It's not going to make much sense. Mother was the woman the whole world had imagined to death. It proved very hard to renegotiate the world's nostalgic fantasy about our purpose in life. The trouble was that we too had all sorts of wild imaginings about what mother should be, and were cursed with our desire not to be disappointing. We did not yet entirely understand that mother, as imagined and politicized by the societal system, was a delusion. The world loved the delusion more than it loved the mother, and so on. And um, real estate ends uh, In in answer to your question, you know, I was talking about Virginia Woolf being told not to walk on the grass. Um, So, real estate ends with permission to walk on the grass. Hmm.
1: It's a lovely way to end this conversation as well. Thank you so much for for, uh, being here. And thank you all.
2: (laughs) Thank Thank you.